morning, Stonebridge. Don't you just love Iowa? I mean, why would anyone want to move to Arizona when you can enjoy the beauty of the snow? Thank you. There's a few who like to drive in it. Well, I'm Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd like to welcome you. Uh, this is a special weekend in the life of our church. We have uh, some special guests to introduce you to in a few minutes. But we're going to just take some time to pray and, and uh, thank the Lord for his goodness. And we'll receive an offering after that. If you're new to our church, uh, we don't expect you to participate. But this is a way that we show our love and, and devotion to the Lord by giving. And it's also a way to invest in his kingdom work. And uh, after the offering, then, we're going to introduce you to our special guests. So let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you. Just think of how the psalmist said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. So even on these snowy days, we know that you're with us. We recognize the beauty of your creation and the way in which you work in our world. We are extremely thankful. But though you are a great creator, we also recognize that we are great sinners. We sin by nature and by choice. Your word tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Lord, we acknowledge that, we confess it, and we're reminded again as we come here that you so loved the world that you gave your only son to provide the cure for our fatal disease of sin. We're so grateful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that trusting in him, what he did for us on the cross through his death and resurrection and ascension, we can be forgiven and cleansed. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. We just give you thanks for that, Lord. Thank you that trusting in you, uh, we can become new creations in Christ. The old has passed away, the new, the day of grace has come. Lord, as we meet today, we want to remember and uh, pray for those that are serving you here in our church. Thank you for every person who contributes time, talent, and, and generosity to the work of this ministry. Thank you for our mission partners that serve all over the, year, all over the world, especially those that are serving in areas that may be hostile to the Christian faith. We pray that you would encourage them today. We thank you for our families and this church. We pray that as we go into this candidating time that you might be honored and glorified. We're so grateful to have Brandon and Carissa and their family with us. And Lord, we also lift up those that have great needs. Uh, we know of those that are suffering from cancer and receiving treatment. We pray for their healing. Thank you for the recent uh, good news that several of our family has received regarding their cancer-free state. Others of us uh, have challenges, family issues, and relational conflicts, and work problems, financial issues. And I just pray that as a result of being here, we might be reminded that you are always with us. You are walking with us. We can find our hope in you. 
Lord, as we give our tithes and our offerings, we pray that these would be an indication of the gratitude we have in our hearts for what Christ has done for us, and that it would be an investment in your work here locally and in our mission partners around the world. May you be lifted up as we celebrate you today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, as we uh, take the offering, I want to welcome our online community. Thank you for being with us. And I want to introduce you to Brandon and Carissa Levering and their children. So could you please just stand up? It's Brandon and Carissa, and then their four children. Josh is the oldest, and uh, then Mariah, and then uh, Eva, and Chloe. And they are from Boston by way of Nebraska. Give them a Cedar Rapids welcome. Pastor Brandon will be coming in a moment to preach, but I wanted to give you my observations as I've been praying and listening throughout the meetings we've been having this weekend. One of the things that has impressed me was God's timing. Uh, you know, about a year ago, I announced that I'm going to be retiring, which I'm saying is redeploying into the Lord's work. And uh, around that same time, God was working in the Levering's lives. They, they were thinking they would spend their whole career at Westgate Church in Boston. And God began to do some things in them to make them available. So I, I've been impressed just by the timing of this. Secondly, uh, I've been very grateful to hear of Brandon's experience, how God has particularly equipped him and Carissa for this ministry. Uh, he had a business and accounting degree in college. Every pastor should have some training in accounting because we have to deal with budgets. But uh, beyond that, they met and, and uh, grew in their faith in the Navigators, which is a ministry on the college campus that he shares the gospel with people, and when they come to know Jesus, equips them, helps build them up in the faith. And they were with the NAVs for four years as Navigator representatives at the University of Nebraska. Uh, not only that, but they went to graduate school in Wheaton, Illinois, and while there, uh, Brandon did an internship and served on the staff at Wheaton College Church, which is a large church with over 2,000 members. So he's had large church experience. Uh, he's also now currently serving at Westgate Church in Boston, Massachusetts, where he oversees a staff of about six or seven people. So he's, God has really equipped him and uh, being a free church pastor, uh, similar in our movement, he, uh, he is serving there for the past uh, eight years. So um, the timing, the experience, but most importantly, we've observed uh, Brandon and Chris's love for the Lord, love for the gospel, which you're going to hear about, uh, love for the word. Uh, I think Pastor Keith said it best when we had the announcement from the search committee that Brandon was our candidate. Uh, Keith and Robin and, and I, and along with a few others, have been a part of his workshops and Des Moines. Pastor Keith said about Brandon, oh, he handles the word really well. See, that, that means a lot to us here at Stonebridge because, um, you know, the trend in our culture is for pastors to be tempted 
to come up with ideas that, and then they look for scriptures to support those ideas rather than standing as the evangelical free church has where stands it written allowing the text to speak and be applied in its relevance to our lives and, I, and I'm really happy to say we have a, a man here who is committed to the scriptures and teaching what the word says so <clears throat> I'm very honored, it's a privilege to introduce to you Brandon Levering, and would you please give him a hand of appreciation again as he comes. We are thrilled to be able to be here with you all. Thanks, Randy. And, um, uh, and humbled uh, to be able to get to know so many wonderful people, to be part of this process of exploring whether God would unite our hearts and our ministries. And uh, it's just been a real privilege. And it's a privilege to open God's Word together this morning. Now, we all know that this is a candidating sermon. So there's a certain amount of evaluation that has to happen here over the next 30, 35 minutes. And that's a good thing. That's a necessary and appropriate thing. Uh, my hope and prayer is that in the midst of that evaluation process, that our hearts and our attention would be focused on God's Word and that His name would be the name that's magnified. And so let's pray uh, to that end as we get started. Gracious Father, um, Lord, we thank you that whenever we open your word, we have confidence that you are speaking to your people. And Lord, what a humble and holy privilege that is. So as we look into your scriptures this morning, uh, we pray for your spirit to be present with us, to give us the eyes we need to see you and the ears we need to hear you, to work in our hearts to prepare us to be changed by your word of grace in the gospel. So be with us this morning. Be with Stonebridge through this discernment process. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most curious stories in the gospels, by far, I think, is when Jesus heals a blind man, but then has to touch him twice for the healing to work. Uh, the story is in Mark 8, and it's one of the only miracles where Jesus uses his own spit as part of the healing process, and it's the only miracle where that healing comes in two stages. Jesus took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. He could see, but he couldn't see, not with any clarity. And so Jesus touches him a second time, and it, we're told he saw everything clearly, which is great. He's healed, but it's still really curious. This is Jesus. Why did he have to touch him twice for the healing to work? But if you keep reading in Mark, you soon realize that that miracle is a living parable for the disciples and their relationship with Christ. In the very next scene, Jesus asks his disciples, 
Who am I? Who do you say that I am? And Mark, or excuse me, uh, Peter responds with one of the most straightforward confessions of faith in all the Gospels. He says, you are the Christ. Peter sees. But then in the very next scene, when Jesus tells him that he's about to be arrested and condemned and crucified and raised, Peter rebukes him and, and vows to stop that from happening. He sees, but he doesn't see. He doesn't see with clarity who Jesus is or what he's come to do. He needs Jesus to touch him again, to touch the eyes of his heart in order to see Christ for who he is and what he's really about. And it can be really easy for us. If we've grown up in the church or if our uh, journey of faith with Christ as, as if we've been down that road for a while, it can be really easy to assume that we see Jesus pretty clearly. Uh, to think that, you know, this, this Christian thing, this, this walking with Christ, I've kind of got this. I, I've got this figured out. Such that when you come to a passage like the one before us this morning, in Ephesians chapter 2, which is one of the most straightforward declarations of the gospel in the entire New Testament, it's really easy to think, well, I can kind of tune this one out this morning. I know that already. I've got some of these verses memorized. I really hope that if there are any non-Christians here this morning, that they're paying really careful attention because they need to hear what this says. In the meantime, I'm just going to check my email or check out. And you would be right to an extent in that if there is anyone here who doesn't yet know Christ, who's trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is and exploring the faith, this is a passage to pay careful attention to because it doesn't get much more clear and straightforward than what Paul says in this chapter. But what's interesting here is that Paul is not writing this letter to non-Christians who don't yet believe in Jesus who don't yet know the gospel. He's writing to believers in Jesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In fact, it's because of their faith in Christ Jesus, in verse 15, that he prays for them that they might know the saving work of God more deeply. What Pastor Randy looked at last week, to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, to know the hope of the gospel and the riches of their inheritance and the power of God at work within them. And he prays that they would know that not because they don't believe the gospel, but because they do. And then he goes on to basically answer his own prayer in chapter 2 by expounding on the glories of God's grace, that they would know God's saving work more deeply. And so why does he do that? Why explain the gospel so clearly and so passionately to a people who already believe it. Because sometimes we see, but we don't really see. We see Jesus, but we don't always grasp the fullness of who He is, or what He's come to do, or what difference that should make for life every single day. Or perhaps having seen him and grasped it, we begin to lose our grip. 
we begin to slip back into old patterns, old ways of life, or, or we begin to rely on ourselves, on our own strength for following Christ, such that when we do well, we feel good. We've maybe got a little something we can boast in, something we can leverage over those who don't measure up so highly today. But when we do poorly, we freak out. We feel like we have to hide or pretend or somehow find a way to make it up to God. It's easy to believe the gospel, but not really believe it. To live as though the Christian life is a matter of pretending and performing. In fact, sometimes Christians can be so good at that that when the outside world looks in, they walk away with the impression that that's what Christianity is, pretending and performing, boasting and shame. But that's not the gospel of Christ. That is not the kingdom Jesus established because it's missing the key ingredient. What redeems our souls and sustains our faith and secures our inheritance and fuels our obedience, what moves us to keep our eyes fixed on God and His glory and not on me and my reputation and what others think of me. It's missing what makes Christianity different from every other religion in this world, namely, grace. It's missing grace. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that grace changes everything. It changes everything. And so what I want to do is, uh, if you are able to stand, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read our text this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's found on page 976. Hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word, and every bit of it is true, and it is given to you in love. You may be seated, but please keep your Bibles open as you sit down. So notice first that, that Paul divides this passage into two sections. The first three verses, uh, he highlights 
He describes the Ephesian church's former spiritual death apart from Christ. And then he sets that in contrast in verses 4 through 10 with their new life in Christ. And he does this in order to drive the point home that all of this, our salvation, our life in Christ, the whole thing is based on God's grace. And we're going to look at this in three parts. Uh, First, we want to understand God's grace. We want to understand it. Second, we want to understand how to receive God's grace. And then third, to keep depending on God's grace. So that's where we're going, and we're going to start with understanding. What do we even mean by the word grace? Now, some of us grew up in families where grace is what you said before you ate food. It it was the blessing right before the meal. Or perhaps you uh, are used to hearing that word or using that word in the context of elegance or poise or charm, someone being very graceful. But of course, when the Bible says, by grace you have been saved, it's talking about something different. It's talking about something different. Something we often define as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Being given something that you don't deserve. And that's true, but that's only part of the biblical picture. Because it's not just that we don't deserve God's salvation. It's not as if we're just neutral. We actually deserve the opposite. We deserve His judgment. We are, as verse 3 puts it, by nature, children of wrath. There's a wonderful children's book that we sometimes read with our kids called Just the Way You Are, and it tells the story of five orphan children who receive word that they're going to be adopted by the king. And upon hearing that news, all of the townspeople tell these children that they really need to impress the king if they want to live with him in his castle. And so one of them takes up painting, and another takes up music and so on, but the youngest child can't find anything that she's really good at. And so she's nervous. And when the king comes... The older children are so busy preparing to impress him that they don't even know who he is or recognize him. The youngest child sees him, but she's ashamed because she has nothing to give him, nothing to offer. And of course, the point of the whole story is that none of them need to perform for the king in order to be accepted by him. They've already been accepted. He loves them in their loneliness and weakness, and he wants them just as they are. And that is true. When God comes to adopt us, He isn't looking for us to put on a show or impress Him or to give Him something in return. Grace comes to us just as we are. And yet, I've always thought that the story would be even more powerful and precise if the children weren't just poor and lonely but were actually plotting a coup to take over the kingdom and and steal the throne from the king. Because not only would that be a lot more exciting, that's a lot more accurate to the biblical picture. Look again at our situation apart from Christ. Look at verses 1 through 3. It is far worse than we are comfortable admitting. We're not just weak or broken. According to Paul, we are dead. We are spiritually dead as a result of our sin and our transgression. 
as a result of our law-breaking, our rebellion against the king. We were not walking toward God, trying to find our way to Him. We were running in the opposite direction. We were living according to the age of this world, operating under the dominion of Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air that Paul references, focused on fulfilling our own worldly passions, chasing our own selfish desires. We were living our own truth. Our spiritual state, apart from Christ, is not neutral. It's deplorable. It's deplorable. We are, by nature, children of wrath, children who deserve His holy judgment for our treasonous rebellion. We need to recognize that apart from Christ, we are far worse than we're comfortable admitting. But then look at the contrast in verse 4. But God, not but you, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's not that God's love comes to us merely in our poverty or our weakness or our brokenness when we can do nothing for ourselves, though that is absolutely true. God's love catches us in the act of treason and still says to us, I love you, I want you, I'm going to take you, clean you, and make you mine. That is grace. That is grace. God's grace is more than unmerited favor. It is being given something indescribably wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. That's grace. Or to quote Jerry Bridges, it is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only His judgment. And it's only when we acknowledge that, when we come to grips with how bad the situation really is, it's only when we acknowledge that that we are in a place where we can begin to comprehend the riches of God's grace. And look at what God does for us by His grace. It is far more than we will ever deserve. So to, to describe our salvation in Christ, Paul picks up the language from the end of chapter 1 when he is uh, telling the Ephesian church the greatness of God's power for them and, and how he has raised Christ. That same power is at work within you. And, and what Paul does here is he shows us how by grace we share in the resurrection and reign of Christ in a spiritual but very real way. What Christ accomplished for us, we participate in that. So just as God raised Christ from the dead in chapter 1, verse 20, so we who are dead in our sins, chapter 2, verse 5, were made alive together with Christ. In verse 6, we're raised with Him. We share in His resurrection. We are no longer dead in our sin. We have been born again to a new life in Christ. And when Christ returns, we will share in His bodily resurrection as well when He raises us on the last day. And, and just as God seated Christ in the heavenly places in chapter 1, verse 20, 
So in Christ, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 6. We share in Christ's reign. Instead of operating under the dominion of Satan, we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That is our new reality. Amen. Amen. Because Christ lived for us the life that we were supposed to live, but wouldn't and couldn't live, a life of perfect covenant faithfulness to His Father. And because He took on Himself the the curse of that covenant, the penalty of our sin, the full weight of God's holy anger against our sin, because He did that for us, we, by God's grace, can have new life. And the reason He did it was not because He looked at us and He said, you know what? That guy, that guy's a winner. I want that guy on my team. That gal over there, she's going to change the world. I better make sure she, she does it for, for us. It, it, it's not what we bring to the table. There is an intrinsic worthiness in every human. We are created in God's image, and that is beautiful, but that does not make up for our rebellion. There's nothing we bring to the table that makes us worthy of God. It is solely by His grace. And and verse 7 tells us this is why He does it, to magnify His own grace. We have been saved so that in the coming ages, or for ages to come, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A few weeks ago, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law uh, their family was on vacation in Hawaii, and they were attending a luau. And at some point in that event, dinner, show, whatever happens in a luau, uh, a gentleman a few tables over for them collapsed. And my brother's an ER doctor, and my sister, and my brother-in-law, and my sister-in-law is a nurse practitioner. And so immediately they just sprang into action and are performing, you know, life-saving care. My brother-in-law is doing chest compressions and other people around are helping out. And by God's grace, they saved that man's life. Now, when that man tells that story someday, do you think he's going to talk about how smart he was to pick a table just near some, some medical professionals? Or how good he was to make sure he attended the luau on the same night that there was a doctor in the house? Will he take any credit at all for saving his own life. No. Dead people can't save themselves. No, he's going to sing the praises of my brother-in-law and all the other people who are there that helped, even though he'll never know their names. And he's going to do it joyfully because he knows that but for their work, he was lost. And so when we understand the riches of God's kindness and grace We can't help but glorify God. We can't help but glorify God. And not only that, we become a display of His glory for ages and ages to come. The church is living proof that God is a God of grace. Otherwise, how could any of us be part of it? He's a God of grace. But that, rec- that raises a question, how do we get in on that? 
That's good news. How do we get in on that? How do we receive God's grace? Well, Paul answers that question in what are no doubt the most famous two verses in our passage this morning, verses 8 and 9. And it's very straightforward. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, Paul keeps pounding that drum of his grace over and over in the passage. And it, it, it's not what you do. It is a gift of God. There's no room for boasting in the Christian life. But he also specifies that the way we receive that grace, that gracious gift, is through faith, through believing in Christ. And faith means trust. It means dependence. It's more than just agreeing that Jesus could save or agreeing that He is Savior. It is actually putting my full weight and hope in Him. I could stand in agreement that the little puddle jumper that took us from Charlotte to Cedar Rapids is capable of getting off the ground in one piece and, and landing and without falling apart and delivering people safely to Cedar Rapids. I could, I could agree with that, but unless I get on board, I'm not going to make it to Cedar Rapids. I actually have to put my faith in that plane. And if that plane goes down, I'm gone because I was all in on that plane. That's what faith means. It, it's trusting Christ personally, depending on Him wholly, putting the full weight of my hope for rescue, redemption, and reconciliation with God in Him, such that if He falls through, I've got nothing. I had it all on Christ. We receive God's grace by trusting in Christ, not in ourselves. We don't contribute to that process. And Paul sets that faith in contrast to our works, to what we do, what we accomplish. For Jews in Paul's day, that meant keeping, uh, it was a form of keeping the old covenant law. That's what, what works we're referring to. Today, it's a lot more generic for most people. Uh, it's showing kindness. It's helping your neighbor shovel their drive. It's, it's not cheating on your taxes or not murdering somebody or remembering to recycle. And, and we, we do all of these things kind of hoping that at the end they'll be good enough to impress God. But saying yes to Christ means necessarily saying no to everything else, including what I bring to the table, including my works. And again, if I'm relying on myself, that means I don't get grace. I might see Christ, but I don't see Him. God calls us to receive His grace by trusting in Christ, not in ourselves. And, and again, I want to commend you. If you are here and don't know Christ as your Savior, hear His word this morning. See the beauty of the grace that He offers for you, that, that God is not sitting in heaven, nervously tapping his foot, waiting for you to finally get your act together so that he can love you. But that he has given everything precious to him by sending his son. He's already done everything necessary to make you his own. He wants you and his grace is sufficient. To hear that and put your trust in Christ. 
We receive the grace of God's salvation by trusting in Jesus, not ourselves. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace doesn't stop there because God's salvation doesn't stop there. If you look at verse 10, you see that we're not just saved from something, from sin, from God's wrath. We're also saved for something, for good works. And so we need not merely to understand God's grace or receive God's grace, but to keep depending on God's grace for all of life and faith. Verse 10 continues to strengthen that contrast between our old spiritual death apart from Christ and our new life in Christ. Whereas before we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we used to walk according to the age of this world in verse 2. Now in Christ, we are to walk in the good works that God has prepared in advance for us, verse 10. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works, for good works, for obedience to God, for repentance from sin, for walking in love, for doing good, for all of the things that Paul's going to spend chapters 4 through 6 talking about. But the minute you start talking about the relationship between salvation and works, an alarm starts to go off in some of our heads. The alarm of legalism. Or performing for God, what we've been talking about and how you're not supposed to do that. You know, how can we now be talking about works and salvation if we're not saved by works? And, and, you know, sometimes we can feel this temptation to kind of minimize the importance of obedience or downplay that because we're afraid it will be understood as legalism, and nobody wants to be called a legalist. But obedience, obedience and legalism are not the same thing. Obedience to God and legalism are not the same thing. As one author puts it, legalism says, I obey Therefore, I'm accepted by God. But grace-fueled obedience says, I'm accepted by God through grace, therefore, I obey. Which brings us back to where we started. Why is Paul preaching the gospel to people who already believe it? Because apparently, we still need it. We still need it. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. We must keep depending on the grace of God for walking with Christ in every aspect of life because it is His grace that makes real obedience possible. Jerry Bridges writes, Every day our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of His grace alone. We are not only saved by grace, we also live by grace every day, which means when I do well, I still need God's grace. And when I mess up, His grace is still enough. Or, or again, as Bridges puts it, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. And grace really does change us. If you listen to what Paul says about grace in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, 
He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, saved by grace. But then look what else it does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace not only saves, it also strengthens us to obey. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Not saved by works, but we are saved for them. And it's grace that trains us, teaches us, gives us the ability to walk with God in holiness. Not the law by itself. And certainly not the law rules the commands when we approach them out of the flesh. As John Berridge once wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The grace of God really does change everything. Everything. It saves us from our sin. It secures our relationship with God. It strengthens us to serve Him, not out of guilt or duty or shame, but out of the delight in a God who saves us by His grace. Jared Wilson summarizes, the message of every other religious system, without exception, is predicated on some variation of three words. Get to work. The utter uniqueness of the Christian message, the heart of the gospel, is founded in the three words of Christ from the cross. It is finished. We can no more ring life change out of religion than we could orange juice out of an apple. But if we cling to the cross, remain aware of our own powerlessness and desperately trusting in it is finished, we will find power and peace to worshipfully work in freedom and with joy. Grace changes everything. Apart from it, we have nothing. Because of it, we have everything. And in my prayer for Stonebridge, regardless of whether the Lord writes us into your story, my prayer is that this church would be a church marked by God's grace. A church that delights in and treasures God's grace. A church that is continuously depending on God's grace and not on yourselves for life and faith. My prayer is that God would indeed open the eyes of your heart to see the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ so that Stonebridge might be a demonstration of the grace and the glory of God for ages and ages to come. That's my prayer, and please join me in praying to that end as we conclude. Gracious Father, what else can we say to you when we look upon your beauty, when we look upon your grace, when we look upon the majesty 
of your kindness, what else can we say but thank you, God? Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for not leaving us dead in our trespasses and sin, but giving everything to make us your own. Lord, may we never take that for granted, and may we never think that we're at a place where we don't need your grace anymore. God, keep us dependent on your grace every day. And may you, by your grace, guide this congregation in wisdom and discernment this weekend. May this church be a a trophy, a treasure, a display of the beauty and glory of your grace for ages and ages to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.